Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. I'm speaking to you now on Sunday the 20th of February and we have a new episode almost ready to go. It was recorded 10 days ago on the 10th of February and in it, Alan and I decided to let go of the exceptionally busy news cycle and do something a little bit different. We decided to have our own foreign policy election debate of sorts. We'll revert to that recording shortly, but as you'll hear in my introduction, I explain why, with an Australian federal election looming, we have low expectations for the actual election debates on foreign policy that will come. Well, sadly, after we recorded, it did not take long for us to be profoundly disappointed with the Prime Minister subsequently referring to Deputy Labor leader Richard Marles as a Manchurian candidate, a remark the PM would subsequently withdraw. But this was after Defence Minister Pete Dutton had called the ALP leader Anthony Albanese China's preferred election candidate. And it does not appear like we were the only ones to frown, shall we say, with ASIO Director General Mike Burgess feeling the need to go on TV this week in an interview and state that the politicisation of the domain in which ASIO works is not helpful. This might be patently obvious to all, but for the head of Australia's domestic intelligence agency to go on national TV and provide that reminder is quite remarkable. One can only hope that the folks were listening in Canberra. But for this episode, we are not going to unpack why politicisation is so problematic. Instead, we want to provide a positive example and hopefully offer some insight to our listeners into some of the genuinely substantive questions facing Australia in the world. With that said, let's get to the recording. Australian foreign policy has been heavily bipartisan since the Second World War. This is not surprising. Our historical experiences, economic endowments and national interests have pointed us in certain directions. The security of our continent has meant that the public has largely not been forced to engage deeply in foreign policy. But as we've lamented recently, Australia will soon be entering into an election campaign in which the quality of foreign policy debate is unlikely to be high. There is a structural reason for this. Each side will be trying to identify and emphasise weaknesses in the record or approach of the other and to neutralise their own weaknesses. Nuanced and sophisticated debate won't be on the agenda. We understand this, and all we can hope for is that not too much damage is done in the process. But our little podcast has decided to go with a different approach altogether. We want to help listeners to think through some of the issues that just won't get much of a look in during the debates of the next few months. To do this, we have come up with four important questions that will shape the future of Australia in the world. We will try to give you our best take of the arguments for and against each proposition, leaving you to make up your own mind or to explore further. 
We are not going to debate them in terms of having a back and forth because we are not trying to reach a consensus, but rather articulate stark contrasts. Before we begin, however, we need to make some necessary disclaimers. Most importantly, you will not necessarily be hearing our views on the individual questions. Today, you will get the best argument that we each can muster, whether it coincides with our own views or not. Indeed, as you'll see, to the extent that a person's actually held views on each of these four questions might be correlated, we've deliberately swapped sides across the questions and therefore we'll basically be required to contradict ourselves from answer to answer. So please, no quoting us out of context. Second, we've tried to frame the questions in terms of a concrete policy agenda where one could, in principle at least, have a coherent and substantive disagreement. There are, of course, important conceptual debates ongoing, such as the ongoing reliability of the US or the nature of the challenge posed by China to the existing international order. And these conceptual questions may well enter in, but we're going to debate propositions that have actual consequences. Personally, I don't see as much of this in Australian debates. Third, we've studiously avoided what I will call more propositions that simply posit that we need to do more or we need to spend more. By themselves, such propositions do not acknowledge trade-offs in doing more, and so we've tried to build in obvious trade-offs in the questions, as you will see. Fourth, we've tried to pick topics that are as much as possible in the foreign and defence policy realms and are not intimately linked with domestic issues that would unavoidably shape the debate. This means two major omissions, climate change and border protection. We acknowledge the trade-offs here and are sorry for those who are disappointed. Finally, as hard as it will be, we will try to play it starkly. So none of the, of course, there's some truth to both propositions here. We will leave the compromises to you. However, we are also going to be free to frame our responses in whatever way we choose. The goal is to argue for or against the proposition, not in a certain way. So, here are the four propositions we're going to debate or lay out the cases for. One, assuming a fixed funding envelope containing defence and foreign policy, Australia should shift resources and attention from the defence portfolio into foreign affairs. Alan, you'll take the case in favour there and I'll oppose. Two, Australia needs a reset in its relations with Beijing and Canberra should be the one to initiate concessions. The specific proposal is that the Australian government adopt a policy of not commenting on China-specific human rights issues, Xinjiang, Tibet, and other domestic repressions. Now, I will speak in favour of this, and Alan will argue against. Three, AUKUS, a scaled-up Five Eyes, and the Quad form the fundamentals of a new Australian architecture for engaging the world and should be given priority over multilateralism. I again will go first to speak in favour of this, and Alan, you'll argue against. Fourth and finally, assuming a fixed funding envelope, foreign policy resources should be shifted away from the South Pacific and into Southeast Asia. Alan, you'll argue for this, and I'll argue against. All right, with that introduction, let's get into this. I think it's going to be fun. So, proposition one, to repeat it, Alan, assuming a fixed funding envelope containing defence and foreign policy... Australia should shift resources and attention from the defence portfolio into foreign affairs. You're taking the case in favour, so go right ahead. Okay. Well, look, thanks to the overwhelming demands to respond to the pandemic, it is a pretty good bet 
that the Australian government spending as a percentage of GDP will decline rather than increase over the next decade. I don't know many people who'd, uh, who'd argue with that. That means that we've got to be certain that we're getting the best bang for the taxpayer's buck. Now, the bang we're looking for in this case relates to one of the central objectives of statecraft, which is the way the government can best protect its people from external threats while maximising their economic welfare. And two government portfolios are critical here, the ones you've named, Defence and DFAT. At the moment, uh, resources and attention are all in one direction. The trajectory of government spending is indisputable. Uh, there's actually, this came into my own books by chance, but a very distinguished former colleague of mine, James Wise, who was the Australian ambassador in Thailand, is bringing out a new paper for ASPE called The Costs of Discounted Diplomacy. And in the paper, James shows that since the beginning of the century, the operating budget for DFAT's policy function, that is the resources available to it for its diplomatic work rather than the subscriptions we have to pay to international organisations and aid and so on, the operating budget has shrunk in real terms by 9%. Now, that's happened at a time when everyone agrees that the global challenges facing Australia have never been greater. You won't have heard a speech by an Australian minister or opposition leader which didn't say that. The result is that DFAT's entire budget will be smaller in 2022 than it was 15 years earlier. Australia ranks 13th in the world for defence expenditure, but has only the 27th largest diplomatic network. When the Prime Minister announced the 2020 defence update, the increase in the size of the ADF, which he uh, trumpeted then, was bigger than the entire Australian diplomatic service. We've got a smaller number of overseas posts than all but one other G20 country. Only We've only got eight missions in the 54 countries of Africa and none at all in Francophone Africa. Furthermore, well over half our posts have three or fewer DFAT staff. Now think about that. Many of them have two, some have only one. If that was you, when you know, you've spent time administering yourself, there is not very much that you can do productively for the national interests apart from that. Now, no one is saying, and I'm not certainly not saying that DFAT expenditure needs to match defence. Embassies are certainly cheaper than submarines and pound for pound, a diplomat costs much less than a soldier. But diplomats can indisputably do things that soldiers can't and can save far more money over the longer term by helping to shape the world in ways that make armed conflict less likely. Now, you don't need to take my word for this American leader's from Jim Mattis to Robert Gates, Australians, military figures like General Angus Campbell have made the same point. Now, I'm not going to pretend to you because I know the business that all diplomatic work leads to productive outcomes. But on the other hand, it's hard to look at recent Australian defence procurement decisions and argue that all that money was well spent. Has the expansion of defence spending left Australia safer and more secure than, for example, the diplomatic contributions we made 
to the development of APEC or the extension of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Defence expenditure is designed for two purposes, to deter adversaries and to fight and win wars if deterrence fails. Its purpose isn't to shape the world or to advance other Australian national interests or values. So far better to invest in the only instrument we have to undertake those tasks. Just as you might say, it might be cheaper and more effective to invest in effective aged care management rather than call in the ADF for a purpose for which it wasn't designed. Over to you. Our cases agree on framing, Alan, in that the question is not whether diplomacy and foreign policy have value. They obviously do. But the question is whether, at the margins, an extra dollar spent in the defence portfolio will offer more for Australia's national interest than in foreign affairs. The argument for defence is that we are in an era where the most potent instruments of statecraft are going to be operated out of the defence, not the foreign affairs portfolio. The changing balance of power is narrowing the scope for international cooperation. In our region specifically, the central organising principle for national interests is increasingly national security. China's rise and its assertive behaviour are making most of the region nervous. Anxiety is exacerbated by questions of America's reliability. To modify former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's famous formulation, fear is beginning to dominate greed. There are two important implications then. First, when it comes to China, Beijing's increasing confidence means that Australia has little prospect of exercising diplomatic influence. The Chinese government have written us off due to our tight relationship with the United States, our confident assertions of sovereignty, and our vigorous defense of liberal and democratic values. This means the only mechanism of influence available to us is deterrence, both in defending our homeland and, more importantly perhaps, through contributing to a region-wide deterrent on the most critical flashpoints, Taiwan, the South China Sea, and the East China Sea. The second implication relates to other states in the region. As security concerns rise within these other countries, new opportunities for defence cooperation will present themselves. If you look just at our maritime ASEAN neighbours, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, I'd say even the Philippines, arguably all of them have inched, albeit slowly, towards positions of relatively greater concern about Beijing's power and intentions in recent years. And if this continues, they will be looking to cooperate more in defence policy. And this is already demonstrably true with Japan and India. Again, this is not to ignore the important work of diplomacy. But let's face it, times have changed. We are no longer relying on our man in Moscow to propose and coordinate a national strategy towards a given country. Leaders text with each other and they can meet face-to-face -face on short notice, just as we saw this week with French President Macron flying to Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin. Moreover, in a deteriorating security environment, the scope for creativity in diplomacy and to get real value added is just limited. The numbers you cited, Alan, are stark, but they reflect the world we live in. At the margins, the greater value add for acquiring influence with our most important regional partners will be through defence policy, not foreign policy. That's great, Darren. Thanks. The second question, just to remind people, was that Australia needs a reset in its relations with Beijing and Canberra should be the one to initiate concessions. The specific proposal is that the Australian government should adopt a policy of not commenting on China-specific 
human rights issues like Xinjiang and Tibet and other domestic repressions. So over to you. Importantly, the argument in favour of this proposal is not that Australia should embrace a Neville Chamberlain at Munich approach. It's not saying we should openly give up on Taiwan or accept the nine dash line or cancel our alliance with the United States. And it's not asking us to embrace authoritarianism, nor even requiring us to let Huawei into our 5G network. The argument instead is for a type of South Korea option, let's call it, that our overall stance towards Beijing should look something more like a country like South Korea's. Careful, precise, reserved. Think of President Moon standing next to Scott Morrison a few months ago in Australia at a press conference being asked about the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics and saying that no one had asked him to join a diplomatic boycott and he wasn't contemplating one either. Importantly, this plan requires that we, Australia, need to initiate a rapprochement and human rights is the least costly place to do so in terms of Australia's national interests because you could argue our work in human rights doesn't achieve all that much globally, tangibly at the moment, while giving it up might also potentially be substantial enough to get Beijing's attention. To begin, it's worth remembering that it wasn't that long ago that Australia's human rights posture towards China was to make our differences clear behind closed doors at an annual human rights dialogue. This was true under Howard. It was even mostly true under Rudd, albeit with some exceptions, and Gillard. So if we wanted to retain something, one practical proposal could be that we try to reinstate that dialogue, even if it's held at a very low level and is effectively meaningless. Importantly, we would otherwise make it clear that the Australian government will not make any public comment on China's internal affairs as they pertain to civil and political rights. So no more joint statements about Xinjiang, Tibet, and yes, that would include Hong Kong too. Let's look at the potential benefits and costs. If it helps restore trade ties, that's an obvious benefit for the economy. While the coercion campaign has not significantly affected our macroeconomy, yet that's not guaranteed to remain so in the future. Could it even benefit our security? Well, if it helps lower the temperature and makes the CCP feel slightly less like its own authority is being challenged, that could help us find a stable security equilibrium. If it helps facilitate cooperation on climate change, that would obviously also be very meaningful. But look, what if it doesn't work and Beijing simply sees this as a sign of weakness and demands more? Well, first, I would say that that's not 100% likely to happen on the facts at hand that we know. I mean, didn't the new ambassador to Australia offer some conciliatory words when he first arrived a little while ago? Moreover, remember that it is the Chinese government which believes that Australia started this without criticism of and interference with their internal affairs. So Beijing would see it as only natural and proper that we should make the first concession. This policy shift would, of course, upset some of our partners, especially the United States. But whatever we lost in diplomatic capital with our Five Eyes partners, say, I think we would more than make up with in our region. Because even if this plan did not work and Beijing still refused to talk and maintain the coercion campaign, it would give us some moral high ground among our partners, our neighbours in the region, while aligning our policy stance with theirs. I don't doubt that across regional capitals we are pitied somewhat for being in the deep freeze right now. I'm also pretty sure that we are seen as having brought this on ourselves. No other Asian country criticises China's human rights like we do. And so by aligning our position with our neighbours on this issue, I think we'd get some credit with them. 
by demonstrating in their eyes some pragmatism, which might actually increase our influence with these most important swing states in the region. Two last points. First, this is obviously a hit to our values. We would have to bite our tongues. But sometimes you have to give up on things that you don't want to. That's foreign policy. It requires compromises. Would it undermine our moral authority? I don't think so. We, along with the US in particular, are already seen as hypocrites by much of the rest of the world, willing to criticize human rights abuses in developing countries, but mostly silent when they are perpetrated by the US around the world or even within Australia's borders or at Australia's borders. So according to this argument, we don't have much influence in global human rights anyway. We're not changing outcomes. And so at the margins, this kind of policy shift would not likely change much. Second, I think the hardest part is how Canberra would press the case for Australian citizens and dual nationals who, to put it euphemistically, are caught up in the Chinese system. They cannot be ignored and do add a further layer of complexity to a difficult situation. But whatever we do, it's going to be tough. The simple point here is that there are pathways where benefit can exceed cost. The idea of resets has a bleak history in recent geopolitics. You just have to think back to Russia and the US during the Obama administration. There's no doubt, I agree with you, that Australia's relationship with China is at a low point. And I don't want to argue that this is all Beijing's fault. I can see that the lack of subtlety in some Australian diplomacy has not helped. But it's pointless to try to reset the relationship on anything other than a long-term foundation. You know, what would be the point of doing anything else? That means that Australia has to be able to act consistently with its principles and values at all times, including by calling out gross breaches of human rights wherever they occur. The alternative is simply not possible in Australia. Any government which tried to ignore or downplay those issues would face serious domestic criticism and criticism from other important players. And that wouldn't be a stable basis on which to build a relationship. It would be perpetually at risk of being knocked off course because Australia would have to pretend to be something that it's not. South Korea may be a fellow democracy, but the intensity and length of its interactions with China make it a poor model. And one of the aspects of Australia that our neighbours in Southeast Asia admire, even if they don't shout it loudly, is our ability to say things to China that because of proximity rather and other complexities in their relationship, they can't. So we serve a useful purpose for them. Nor uh, should Australia be the party making concessions here, because to do that would be to reward Beijing for its coercive behaviour. We should certainly be calmly willing to engage with Chinese officials, but that doesn't mean conceding that errors on our part were solely responsible for the crisis in relations. If we know anything about dealing with Chinese leaders, it is that consistency and strength, quiet but determined, will get you further over the long term than easy capitulation. To ensure China's respect, we have to respect ourselves. Number three, you'll recall, is about AUKUS. AUKUS, a scaled up Five Eyes and the Quad form the fundamentals of a new Australian architecture for engaging the world 
and should be given priority over multilateralism. Now you're going to lead off here, Darren. Yes. In many ways, this is a continuation of the case I articulated earlier in favour of giving the marginal dollar of budgetary spending to defence rather than foreign affairs. Look, while multilateralism isn't completely dead, it's very much on life support. All of the important climate work is being done at the national and subnational level. The UN system is fading into irrelevance on the important questions of international security, and in its twilight, the UN is really just a development and technical assistance organisation, and even then, it's losing ground to Chinese money, infrastructure and technology. Meanwhile, the WTO is basically an animated corpse with zero prospect of further reforms. The future of international cooperation is minilateral, and in a world of major power rivalry, it will be anchored not by shared social, economic, or even political interests, but shared security interests, at least for those who perceive China to be a threat. In that first articulation in favour of defence, I spoke of the increasing climate of anxiety around China's rise. Well, that anxiety is not just about their hard military capabilities, but the consequences of China's economic and technological leadership. This is the geoeconomic narrative described very well by my colleague Anthea Roberts in her book, Six Faces of Globalization. And it means that the positive sum logic of trade and other forms of international cooperation just no longer prevails. And the most important ingredient of cooperation is going to be trust. Trust which comes from sharing security interests. Therefore, AUKUS, the Five Eyes and the Quad, are not just about hard military power and intelligence. They're already morphing into vehicles for dialogue and cooperation in broader domains. Think of technology in AUKUS, vaccines in the Quad, or as I think we might have mentioned on a previous podcast, the case when our treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, participated in a call with fellow Five Eyes finance ministers in the early months of the pandemic to talk economic issues. Trust is going to be the basis of new mechanisms of cooperation. And look, once those mechanisms are built, they may acquire the gravity to pull others into their orbit as more and more countries decide that they share similar security interests. Whether we like it or not, and as inefficient as it might be from time to time, the structural forces of world politics are seeing the formation of a balancing coalition. And these types of minilateral mechanisms offer the most realistic and durable way of helping them materialize in effective ways and create the kind of deterrent that is needed to achieve a stable security equilibrium. This is not to walk away from multilateralism entirely, but rather to say that at the margins, these minilateral groupings hold the most promise. Alan. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what's being said here. The assertion is that Australia's relations with six other countries, the United States, Britain, India, Japan, Canada, and New Zealand, can form an architecture for engaging with the world and should be prioritised over multilateralism. This is ridiculous. I know that over the course of the pandemic years, we've become more isolated and closed off seeking out the comfort of friends and homes, but for heaven's sake, Australia, get over it. Australians have a bad habit of looking for the easy way out, outsourcing our security and foreign policy, but this won't work any longer. Our range of interests is objectively quite different 
from India's or Japan's or even New Zealand's. Have a look at the recent Quad communiques, for example, and tell me that they come near comprehending the scale of Australia's foreign policy interests. Prioritising AUKUS over multilateralism is just preferring the pleasant stroll to the uphill hike. We can easily agree with our friends in these forums and enthusiastically reinforce each other's views, but we can't actually change anything, whether international security or the environment or cyber norms, unless we engage others. And the forums in which this will happen will necessarily be multilateral. Multilateralism isn't an institution, it's a recognition that the international order is a complicated and diverse system and that shaping it requires us to listen to and deal with the voices of all the participants. What other way is there? It's no use responding that the United Nations or the World Trade Organization have numerous and growing problems. Of course they do. That's the impact of growing disagreement between the great powers. But the world is full of problems that can't be solved by the Anglosphere, Japan and India nor through the channels of bilateral relationships that only leaves you multilateralism. Now, this isn't an argument against AUKUS or a scaled up Five Eyes or the Quad. We can have a separate discussion about that. But it is to say that if you think that these institutions or brands or whatever they are should be given priority over multilateralism, you're just not thinking clearly about how the world works. All that AUKUS, Five Eyes and the Quad have in common is the participation of the United States and this at a time when the US has moved from being a constant to a variable in the international system. We don't need to walk away from the relationship or the ANZUS Treaty, but we are surely taking a huge risk by placing so much reliance on a single actor. We should take note of our own advice to ourselves on trade with China. Diversification is an essential risk mitigation strategy, even when things look to be going well. Darren. Okay, well, our final proposition, a short one. Assuming a fixed funding envelope, foreign policy resources should be shifted away from the South Pacific and into Southeast Asia. Alan, you're taking the case in favour. There is no question that for all the breathless claims about Chinese designs on the South Pacific, Southeast Asia and what happens there will have a greater impact by far on Australia's security and prosperity in coming decades. No part of the world tests Australia's foreign policy capabilities like Southeast Asia. It requires us to engage deeply with powerful neighbouring states whose history and culture are very different from our own. The small states of the South Pacific offer so many fewer challenges. We mostly share their history of colonialism. They speak English, they attend the same churches we do, they play rugby. We can talk about them as our family in the, what would you say, chattily proprietorial way we have adopted. But if you line up Australian security, economic and people-to-people -people interests, Southeast Asia requires a greater investment of Australian diplomatic and other national resources than the South Pacific. Now, this is an argument for a shift of resources to Southeast Asia, but you, you could equally argue that there are reasons to step back a little from the South Pacific. It receives more aid than any other part of the world per capita and is already finding it difficult to absorb. 
there's a danger of smothering small states with so much attention, much of which, as we continually make clear, is really just about competition with China. The result is questionable investments like uh, Digicel. I'm not suggesting that the resources we shift should be put into aid in the old-fashioned sense in Southeast Asia, but into areas where we can work more deeply in partnership with ASEAN countries. Common efforts to address health or environmental concerns would be prominent. Darren. Like the other questions, of course here, both sides are obviously worthy of our attention and resources. But prioritising the South Pacific, I think, rests on two pillars, impact and obligation. First, Australia lacks the resources to be a major player in Southeast Asia. And it's worth keeping in mind that our relative power there is only going to erode further as the region itself becomes more capable and wealthy. Are we really going to shift the needle on anything? Each ASEAN country, for example, has a relatively mature and stable foreign policy, perhaps with the exception of Duterte's Philippines. And each in particular understands China as well, if not better than we do. So it's hard to see how we can make much of a difference. Contrast that with the much smaller South Pacific, where we do have the resources to make a big splash. The Lowy Institute publishes the excellent Pacific Aid Map, which illustrates that in terms of foreign aid and diplomatic footprint, we remain the biggest player. Yes, the South Pacific might not be the most important region strategically in the world. I mean, it's not like it's World War II where we needed the Americans to hold off the Japanese at Henderson's Field in the Solomon Islands because of the location's strategic importance to the Pacific campaign. But nevertheless, today it does still hold some strategic significance for us. But importantly, we can actually do something. The moral argument is short and sweet. These are our closest neighbours. There is a lot we can contribute, though we should never, of course, give up trying to be innovative in how we do so. But look, other than New Zealand, no one else in the world is going to care about the region more than we do. So it really is on us to step up. Okay, Alan, I will finish there and let's take off our debating hats or debating blazers. I, I think back to when I was uh, in high school. I don't mention this often, but I was the captain of my high school debating team. So I can, I can just see you, Darren. <laughs> let's have a bit of a reflection now on, on what just happened. When we began this exercise, you know, I had a hunch there would be correlations between the questions, and I sort of mentioned that at the outset. And I think that was very much borne out. You know, I think there are pretty strong links between each of the cases we made. If you think, for example, that we should prioritise defence over foreign affairs, you're much more likely, I think, to be sceptical that we can make headway with China, and you're going to see merit in the AUKUS Five Eyes Quad package as the most fertile area of international cooperation. And look, maybe even it could be a bit of a stretch, but maybe even you're going to be more partial to the big ticket things we can do in the South Pacific rather than the complex and, and painstaking work of engaging with Southeast Asia. But even if we take that last part out, it does seem to me that the biggest questions facing Australia and the world do seem linked by a common core. How did you see things? Well, you're right about the correlations, Darren. As I worked through um, our debate topics, I realised that the way you respond to each of them will depend in turn on how you think about just a handful, really, of fundamental questions. And for me, I think those, those questions are about the US, uh, China, the way the world works, and Australia itself. The, the first question 
you've got to come to a judgment about is the United States. Do you think that despite obvious political difficulties at present, the Americans will bounce back as they have so often in the past, that a strong sense of unified national purpose will be restored together with a willingness to continue to make sacrifices of money and blood in the course of rebuilding a liberal international order? Or do you judge that shifts in global power, especially China's rise, mean that no matter what Washington and we might want, the United States is unlikely to be able to resume a position of international primacy, that its internal differences have by no means played out, and that US strategic policy is going to be more uncertain as Australia deals with the future world. So that's US. On China, the question I think revolves around whether you think China wants to remake the world order and particularly the region around it in ways that are more consistent with its own authoritarian system, that its ambitions are rising with its power and that these will be incompatible with Australian interests? Or do you see a state with growing power, certainly, but one that's more interested in securing a greater say in shaping an international system in which it already has deep roots and interests? On the way the world works, I think the issue here is, do you look out and see a messy, contingent world in which we are always going to have to make our way through the treacherous marshes of the international system? Or is the world clearer to you? Do you acknowledge all those variables and uncertainties, but still see that there's a clear path through it? And finally, on Australia, how much agency do you think we have in the world? If you've got a lot of confidence that we can change things, not alone, obviously, but working with others, you'll be more willing to take risks. If, on the other hand, you consider that the quantum of power available to Australia is very limited and our security lies in engagement with larger partners and trusted friends, you're going to be more limited in what you are prepared to do. Now, we all lie somewhere along that spectrum, but the end you're closest to will determine where you come out on some of these issues. Thanks, Alan. I'll just add one wrinkle on the agency question because I think it might cut both ways. For example, on the question of values, what I'm wondering is whether the argument that we need to stick up for our values is actually in part an argument that we do have agency because it implies that if we don't stick up for our values, the world will be a worse off place. And that implies that we have agency. The alternative is that we argue, as I did playing my role above, that we have not been effective in the human rights space and that scaling back our defense of these values will not affect world politics very much. But that argument, of course, also assumes that we can grasp more agency through a strategy and achieve more through a strategy that places less emphasis on values. So this makes me just think that advocates on, on both sides of these debates probably do think that Australia has agency. They just disagree about the mechanisms through which we acquire and wield agency. So I'm left with this question, I suppose. Everyone acknowledges that the world is changing rapidly, but how are these changes in turn affecting 
the way in which Australia seeks to wield power and influence. Are they making some instruments, whether it's military force or foreign aid or multilateral diplomacy, more or less effective? I think for me, that's what I'll dwell upon. Okay, well, with that, let's let's wrap up. That was uh, fun, and I hope that our listeners found it both fun and hopefully uh, somewhat illuminating as well. But let's do our final segment, reading, listening, and watching. Alan. Uh, two new releases very relevant to the questions we've been discussing. I've already mentioned the new Aspie Strategic Insights paper, The Costs of Discounted Diplomacy by James Wise, which came out on the 11th of February. And secondly, the release of a series of interesting practical questions on how Australia should be engaging with Southeast Asia that have come out of the innovative Asia-Pacific Defence Development and Diplomacy Dialogue. AP4D was established by some far-sighted thinkers in each of those three areas to try to integrate the insights which each of the disciplines can bring to Australian policy and to help de-silo the whole policy process. And these papers are the first fruits of that interaction and were worth reading. Full disclosure, I'm a member of the AP4D advisory board, but I had nothing to do with the writing of the papers. I've uh, been preparing to teach the second iteration of my bespoke class on geoeconomics for the ANU's National Security College's Master of National Security Policy degree. And so I've been catching up on some of the best things written over the past 12 months. And one piece that I was particularly impressed and a little bit surprised at how good it was, was by the head of the Eurasia Group, Ian Bremer, writing in Foreign Affairs in the most recent November-December 2021 edition. The article's title is The Technopolar Moment. And while I appreciate that Bremer elicits a range of reactions from both for the substance and the style of how he <laughs> conducts himself. This piece really was excellent, and I want to quote one passage just to give you a flavour of the overall piece. Quote, It is time to start thinking of the biggest technology companies as similar to states. These companies exercise a form of sovereignty over a rapidly expanding realm that extends beyond the reach of regulators, digital space. They bring resources to geopolitical competition, but face constraints on their power to act. They maintain foreign relations and answer to constituencies, including shareholders, employees, users, and advertisers. Political scientists rely on a wide array of terms to classify governments. There are democracies, autocracies, hybrid regimes, which combine elements of both. But they have no such tools for understanding big tech. It's time they started developing them, for not all technology companies operate in the same way. Okay, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. This episode, we bid farewell to Mitchell McIntosh, who I think has been our longest tenured podcast colleague, and we cannot thank him enough for his outstanding work. Thank you, Mitchell. Yes, the silver lining, though, is that we welcome Annabelle Howard and thank her for her help this week. Thanks also, of course, to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Talk to you again soon.